My guest today is Judge Linda Davis of the 41st District Court in Macomb County, Michigan. Judge Davis has long been an advocate of people struggling with addiction issues. And through uh, the drug court uh, in Macomb County, she's been able to provide uh, long-term treatment uh, for uh, folks with addiction, and uh, they're showing some incredible success uh, over time. I saw Judge Davis speak at an event last summer where she talked about a program called Hope Not Handcuffs, and I was very intrigued. And when I left the event, I thought uh, this would be a perfect uh, podcast topic. So I'm very, very grateful that she uh, took the time to speak with us today. Uh, Judge Davis, I want to thank you for joining us on this podcast today. I've, I've been looking to the, uh, forward to this for quite some time, so I'm happy that we're able to talk today. Um, thank you, Jim. First of all, why don't you start with a little bit of uh, introduction of yourself and, and your background and, and uh, the uh, 41st District Court. Okay. Um, well, I started my career as a school teacher, and I actually worked with troubled youth. I ran an alternative ed program for a large portion of my uh, teaching years. I, I was also a high school counselor. So I have a varied background dealing with issues with kids that had, back then, marijuana and drinking problems, uh, and certainly that's escalated. Then I left that career and became a prosecutor. I went to law school, became a prosecutor, and I actually ran our drug unit uh, and worked for 13 years at the prosecutor office office and I prosecuted most of our large drug cases in Macomb County. I uh, was elected judge in the year 2000 and I uh, have been doing district court work uh, for the last 17 years. I also run um, a large drug court at the 41B District Court and I am involved with Families Against Narcotics which is a local organization that has gone nationwide at this point that try to help people in the community with drug abuse problems and their families uh, find answers to their questions because there's very little resources out there for families. And then recently started a program called Hope Not Handcuffs, which is a program that allows people to walk into a police department and some participating hospitals and ask for help. And rather than being arrested or admonished, they will be placed into treatment that day. And that program is going statewide this year, and we're hoping to eventually take that nationally as well. I want to uh, dive much deeper into Hope Not Handcuffs a, a little bit later on, but um, just for our listeners here, you're, you're in Macomb County, Michigan, which would you say is uh, just a little bit north of Detroit, Michigan? Yes, it's north of Detroit, and it's one of the three largest communities in Michigan. Why don't you uh, tell our, our listeners a little bit about what a drug court is? How is that different than a regular court, and how does that function? Um, a drug court is usually funded by grant money. We get money from both the federal government and the state state government to run it. Uh, there is a screening process that comes that you go through if you are going to be admitted into drug court. Obviously, it re, it revolves around drug and alcohol related issues. Um, there are drug courts. There are drug court sobriety courts, which is what I run. I take both alcohol and drug issues into my court. 
if you go through the screening process and you are eligible, and usually the only thing that makes you not eligible is number one, if you're not high risk, high needs, there's an assessment that's done. We only take people that really need support and help. So if you are alcohol dependent but not necessarily addicted, you may not you may not score high risk, high needs. That would mean that you aren't able to control this on your own uh, with normal supervision. You need a more intense supervision. The other thing that would exclude you from it is any major assaultive crimes. Um, we are prohibited by law from taking people with assaultive crimes, and there's a lot of movement right now to change that because so many assaultive crimes are caused by drug addiction or alcoholism that we're really missing an element of people that need support and help. So there are a lot of people that are looking at that right now to see if that area needs to be changed. But if you pass the screening and are admitted into drug court, you have a really intense program to go through. A lot of people think drug court is easy, but I actually get people that'll come in and say, you know, just give me the jail time, it'd be a lot easier. But people that are really serious about getting clean or sober really like the, the effort that's made to help them do that. Um, I meet with individuals once a week for uh, the first 90 days of the program and then twice a month after that and then in the third phase and fourth phase of the program I see them once a month. But we have a team that's made up of counselors, made up of uh, drug screening people, um, assessment. We have a director who does all of the assessing. We have counselors that do additional assessment of these individuals. We work with um, police departments, the prosecutor's office. We all meet as a team to decide the best course of action for a person's treatment. But the first 90 days are pretty intense. It usually requires going to 90 meetings in 90 days, which are support meetings, and they can be everything from Celebrate Recovery to AA, NA, uh, Smart Recovery. Any recovery meeting uh, counts as a meeting for us. And then we use things like Families Against Narcotics meetings. You can use those to replace AA meetings. And we oftentimes will even allow church meetings to substitute as long as it's something in the community that is giving you support for your sobriety. You're drug tested a minimum of three times a week. Uh, you are seeing a counselor once a week, group counseling in the second phase. Um, it's very intense, and what we're trying to do is give you as many tools as we can. We also use medically-assisted treatments. Uh, we, have, we started the first Vivitrol program in the state of Michigan, which before you were released from jail, you would be given a shot called Vivitrol. It's non-narcotic, and it reduces the cravings, in most cases takes away the cravings, for using either opiates or alcohol, and we found it very beneficial for two. And that works perfect in a drug court setting because you are getting lots of support, you are getting lots of monitoring, you're getting all the counseling that's required and necessary. And the reason I say that is because there is no magic bullet for addiction. There's nothing that you can take that without counseling and without working a strong program is going to maintain sobriety in the long run. Uh, you can maintain it in the short term, but for long term, 
you really need to do a combination of all of those things. So drug courts give that person the support that they need. Many drug addicts have lost all of their support systems. Their families have um, pretty much gotten tired of them. I hate to use the word abandoned, but you almost have to do that at some point because it is so draining on the families. Uh, and these are people that want help, they just don't know how to get it. And so it's it's really important to understand that drug courts work. We have about a 76% success rate in my drug court, and that varies from drug to drug court to drug court, and it really depends on how well they're, they're run and how many resources are being put into it. Uh, but it's phenomenal to watch young people who, when they come to you, are pretty down and out and desperate, turn their lives around, go back to college, finish their education. We have one girl... Uh, that I would have thought was a lost cause when she first started. And she's now working for Disney, traveling all over the country, doing things in their art department. Phenomenal young girl, just had lost her way, made some bad decisions, and found herself addicted to heroin. You mentioned uh, a 76% success rate. How is that measured? What, what, is the, what is the definition of success for a drug court? Well, they are with us from anywhere from 18 to 24 months, and they've maintained sobriety throughout that. You have to understand that the last stages of this, they're pretty much just coming in occasionally to report to me. We're still having them alcohol or drug tests. And then we have numbers that go further out, and I can't quote those statistics for you. But we do keep track of people that have gone through drug court. Uh, and the recidivism rate is really phenomenal on drug courts and people that come back through the system again and the number of people that maintain sobriety for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. So drug courts have been around for a long time. They weren't real popular until about uh, eight years ago. But in Michigan, we have the largest per capita uh, number of drug courts of anywhere in the nation. Is that right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of drug courts. You know, we partner with a lot of uh, specialty courts around the country. Uh, I think right. the idea is phenomenal. I think it, my perception, and, and I may be wrong, and you may correct me on this, though, is that, um, you know, the, there's limited resources available. So, that, so there's uh, a lot less fewer people have access to a drug court than would probably benefit from a drug or a DUI or a sobriety court of, of, of some kind? Absolutely. Uh, at the, the peak of when we had the federal grants coming in, uh, we, we serviced between 65 and 80 people in our drug court. I could probably triple that number easily uh, if there was money available. Uh, but treatment is expensive and people still are lagging behind on understanding the value of dealing with this. The money that would be saved on incarceration would be astronomical if people really realize that incarcerating an addict is really counterproductive. Uh, most addicts relapse within 72 hours almost across the board within 30 days of being released from jail. And the longer they're in jail, usually the quicker the relapse. Um, we really de deplete any resources they have, and people don't get well from drug addiction without treatment, and most jails don't do treatment. And so people are just sitting there with a disease that continues to fester, and when they're released, 
they go right back out and they use again because that's all they know and they haven't dealt with the addiction while they were incarcerated. So we've known that for years that incarcerating addicts doesn't work, um, but it's, it's, it's a dilemma to me. We tell addicts all the time that if you want to see different results, you have to change what we're doing. And yet we have worked in a broken system for at least the last 50 to 70 years of incarcerating people, knowing that when they come out, they're going to relapse and use again and be part of the system. And the amount of money that is spent uselessly on incarceration when that isn't the answer is astronomical. And yet the system is very slow to catch up with changing what they're doing to start really dealing with the problem rather than just postponing it. Is, is my perception correct, though, that this may be changing? The number of specialty courts is increasing across the country. Is, is that It is increasing, but, Jim, the, the dilemma is, is that, like, we had a very large grant from the federal government to run our drug court, and we really are looked at as one of the best-run drug courts in the country. We get asked to speak at national conferences. Uh, we've done innovative things. We were one of the first courts to use peer coaching. We were the first court to implement a medically-assisted treatment program in Michigan. And my drug court is talked about all over the country. And yet when our grant is up, it's very likely we will not be funded again. Judges aren't allowed to raise money, so we can't go out in the community and raise money for drug court because most of the people are not that are involved in drug court don't have any means to raise money. And so what ends up happening is the drug courts just go away and they start new ones and we're always starting over again rather than continuing and expanding the services that of the ones that are already in existence and starting small with communities that don't have them. We say that you have to sustain your own drug court well, most communities, you know, have lost money over the last years. They're not going to give us money to sustain it. And so we have to look to grant money to do that. And the same people don't get grant money over and over again. And I've seen it time and again where a drug court will get up, will be operating, doing great things, lose their grant funding, and have to close their doors. Wow. Well, here's hoping that doesn't happen there in Macomb County. Yep, I'm hoping. We've applied for another one, so hopefully it'll go through and we can continue um, to, to move forward with that. The reason I, I was really interested in, in talking to you today is this idea, I, I want to talk about this idea of the what is being called the opioid epidemic. Uh, I see it called that, you know, I, I look at, at various uh, news stories online or uh, oftentimes it's, it'll be on the local news or the national uh, television news when I watch and they talk about the opioid epidemic. And that's kind of what I want to uh, focus on today. Is that the proper term? How, how would you describe what you're seeing relative to um, the opioid use? If people knew how big it was, it would scare them to death. Um, and, and I don't mean that as an exaggerated statement. I realized this many years ago, and finally the, the government and our legislators are catching up with it. But um, if you stop to think about the death toll, uh, 174 people die every day 
from overdose in this country that surpasses car crashes, and I believe it surpassed the number of people dying from cancer daily last year. We have never had an epidemic of that magnitude. This far exceeds what we would call an epidemic. Um, and I, I used to know what, what an epidemic meant, like how many people a day have to die, but we surpassed that seven years ago with, with the number of people that were dying from addiction. The unfortunate part of it is there's such a misunderstanding about addiction and such a stigma about it that people will will respond with, well, we should just let them die. They made a choice. And they don't understand that addiction is really a disease of the brain and that without treatment, these people can't stop doing what they're doing. Now, yes, everybody makes a choice to pick up a drink or... Um, or to take a narcotic at some point in their life. It may be because you got a wisdom tooth pulled and you took narcotics. And it should be interesting to note that 73% of people that become addicted to opiates, that's painkillers like Vicodin, hydrocodone, oxycodone, um, Norcos, those people, 73% of them got addicted from a legal prescription to begin with. And so it could be a tooth being pulled or a sports injury or a knee operation or a hip replacement. Um, and people of all ages get addicted to these drugs because doctors have in the past written 30, 60, 90, 120 with multiple re refills. And we're taught as patients to take the medication as needed. So if you're in any pain at all, you pop another one or take them until they're, they're gone. So you take opiates for 30 days, take them for seven days, um, the way they're prescribed, you're already dependent on them and very close to being addicted to them where you need them to not be in pain. And a lot of people think, well, I need those opiates to stay out of pain, but really the opiates cause pain. So when you're coming off of them, you're in excruciating pain and you think it's from your original injury when really the pain you're in is from withdrawal. And so you have to be off of them to know where your pain level is at. But most people can't get there because they're so dependent on them. And I will tell you, I work with young people time and time again that truly got addicted accidentally. Kids that wouldn't take marijuana, would not drink because they thought that was really stupid but were prescribed narcotics from a doctor for a sports injury. We had one young kid who was a world-class soccer player, traveled all over the world, had scholarship opportunities like you would not believe, was, um, was, was given narcotics to deal with this pain, ended up an incredible heroin addict, lost everything, and this was a kid that would not drink or use marijuana, but because a doctor was prescribing these and told them to continue taking them, he became addicted to them and could not stop without intervention and without help. And I can tell you story after story. So when people write in and say things, ignorant things like let them die or why should we waste money on Narcan, you're playing God with someone who has a disease. We would never say that with someone with cancer or with diabetes, and we know absolutely scientifically that this is a disease. Because I have a, an interest in this, you know, I, I seek out um, news stories, and, and I read them and so on. 
So I am, I am flooded with statistics, and, and, and those numbers can be so big. When we look at uh, 64,000 deaths annually, or we look at something like $500 billion in economic costs, those numbers, you know, they, they, you, you kind of get lost in the weeds with that. It's kind of hard to wrap, wrap your head around that. But I, um, I read something, and I, I it, it, just as an aside to our listeners, if people want to just take a, a, a quick glimpse at what it is we're talking about here. There was a special edition of Time Magazine put out on March 5th of this year called The Opioid Diaries. It, it, it's, a, it's a photographic essay along with some, some narrative that just talks about the scope of this and really brings it down to a human level. But the one number that I read in that magazine, of all the numbers that I've read that really jumped out at me and, and stuck with me, was that in, in the year 2015 and 2016, here in the United States, the richest, potentially one of the richest countries in the world, life expectancy actually decreased. And, and in, in part of that is what we're calling this opioid epidemic. Life expectancy right. in this country went down in two successive years. That, that was mind-boggling to me. Right. And the other statistics that's really, um, that I just heard recently that's mind-boggling, Jim, is that it used to be that about uh, 7% of all organ transplants came from um, from overdose-related deaths. It's now up to 40% of all organ transplants are deaths from opiate addiction. Uh, that, that's, that's just amazing to me. It's crazy. The numbers are staggering, and I'm telling you, I've had people criticize, criticize, criticize people uh, for getting help, making fun of them, and lo and behold, those same people will call me a year later, six months later, three months later, and they have a kid that's going through this, or a nephew, or a grandson, Um, and so people need to really be cognizant of the fact that this is such a widespread epidemic that if your family hasn't been affected by it hang on to your hat because it's likely to be um i I think you and i could could throw numbers back and forth for for a long time it's just it's just that there's just uh so many numbers out there so let's let's take it away from from that focus for just a minute i i you know in my um in my years working in this field i Back in the in the late '80s, we saw uh, what we were calling uh, the crack cocaine uh, epidemic at that time. Right. And the treatment program that I worked in, you know, created a special treatment track for crack cocaine users. And then, as we got into the the '90s, maybe in early 2000s, I was reading a lot about the methamphetamine crisis. Right. And I, I can remember seeing front page uh, uh, newspaper stories about how the United States needs more funding for methamphetamine intervention and treatment and so on. So here we are in in 2018, and we're talking about the opioid epidemic. And um, I think I made the mistake in in talks that I've given when I sort of compare those things and say this is just another sort of epidemic, but it's not, is it? I mean, this is on on a scale greater than that, wouldn't you say? Far surpasses it. Yeah. You know, I, because this isn't something um, that's just a street drug. This is something that was really perpetuated by our federal government when they made pain management the fifth vital sign. And doctors were educated to use opiates for almost everything. I mean, I don't care what you went to the doctor for. 
if you had any kind of, I wouldn't even call it pain, discomfort. I remember getting LASIK surgery on my eyes and the doctor wrote a script for 30 Vicodin and I said, am I going to be in pain for weeks on end here? He said, no, you'll have some discomfort. I said, well, then I don't want those. Those are narcotics. I don't want to take narcotics when I might just be uncomfortable. But we've become a society that we want to numb ourselves to everything. We don't want to feel anymore. And as a result of that, we've gone from pain management to pain obliteration. And when you do that, you're using very strong drugs to get to the point where you don't feel pain. And that's where the problem comes in. So we need to go back to managing pain rather than destroying pain um, and get back on the right track with a number. I know we're away from the numbers, but I do think it's significant to indicate that in the United States we consume about 95% of opiates, all opiates produced worldwide, and we only make up 4% of the world's population. We are truly a pill-popping society. Uh, that. That's very interesting. I've I've had some conversation with nurses who have said that what contributes to this is is patient satisfaction surveys in the hospital and how um, uh, hospitals are judged based on these surveys. Part of which is pain management. So I, that is true. Yeah, very interesting. Right. I think I think uh, rather than you know I, I in the past how I've compared this to the crack cocaine or the methamphetamine crises. Uh, I read recently that this is more like the early HIV crisis. Right. And that really resonated with me. Right. Uh, You know, you mentioned... And think of the stigma that existed with HIV. And and I'm not going to say it's gone because you still... You're always going to have ignorant people who just don't want to understand. But that's really where we need to get with addiction is we need to realize that this is no different than someone who has diabetes and eats pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving and relapses and has to go in for insulin. It's no different than a cancer patient who, because they're addicted to cigarettes, continues to smoke. We don't judge those people because they had a moral failing. We continue to treat them, and yes, yet with addiction, we don't do that. You know, we we allow so many treatments and then you're done with it. And so we're really playing God with people's lives, deciding who gets to live today and who doesn't. I did an earlier podcast uh, a few months ago with a a state representative here in Michigan. And we were talking about some of the legislative efforts that have been made to address this. Um, One of them was a a prescription history database that... uh, um, that I think um, uh, recently the law was uh, signed here in Michigan that there will be a prescription history database and, and pharmacists will be required to uh, access that. Um, there have been other efforts uh, made to reduce uh, prescriptions from a 30-day supply to a 7-day supply. And I, I read yesterday that, um, I, I don't know if this happened yesterday, but I read yesterday that this same representative that I talked to uh, wants now to... Uh, have locks put on prescription bottles to, uh, as an effort to stop um, uh, folks from, from getting into prescription medications that aren't theirs. And um, I wonder if you could just comment on that in general, just sort of the legislative approach in general. Is that, has it been successful? Do you think it'll be successful going forward? What else would you like to see? Just that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I we have. Um, well, I lead the governor's task force on opiate addiction, so um, I'm involved at the state level on a regular basis. I've also been invited to be part of um, Tr President Trump's effort to deal with this issue. I've been to the White House on five different occasions uh, to give testimony and to be involved with that as well. Um, and I do think that we're moving in the right direction. We have a long way to go. Uh, and I think a lot of that still has to do with the stigma of addiction is that we're doing a lot of le legislative changes, but what we really need is appropriations. We need more treatment beds. We have a lot of people who can't get into treatment because beds aren't available. And with opiate addiction, when somebody's ready for treatment, they need to be given treatment that day. Um, not two weeks out, not three weeks out, because a large number of those people die before we can ever get them the help that's necessary, especially with fentanyl being so prevalent in our communities right now. I do think that in, in Michigan, we were just rated as one of the top states dealing with this in legislation. I know we have probably 30 different pieces of legislation that have been um, that had been recommended by the, the commission that the legislators needed needed to act on, and they really are moving very quickly compared to how the legislature usually moves uh, to get a lot of those passed. And, and there's some really creative things uh, coming out, like the locked pill bottles. A lot of accidental overdose, overdose and deaths occur with children because People have narcotics sometimes for very legitimate reasons in their homes, and yet you get a baby or a four-year-old or a seven-year-old that takes one of those pills, they can't handle it, and it can be deadly just as an accident. And there's a number of those deaths that happen every year. So we're doing campaigns all the time. Here in Macomb County, we did a program called Operation RX where we actually printed posters saying, you know, store safely, discard appropriately, use only as needed, and um, dispose of what you have left over. But part of what people need to start thinking of is that opiates are just as dangerous as a loaded gun in the wrong hands, and that if you're going to have them in your home because you do have a pain that warrants that you need opiates, keep them locked up just like you would a loaded gun um, so that there's not access to teenagers who are looking to use them or to young people who accidentally take them. Kids have this belief that because doctors write these, they're safe. And as a result of that, uh, we do that. We've also, uh, not sharing is one of the big things that we've done because we've become very disrespectful of drugs in our country and we share them regularly. I always tell a story about I have a friend that's a nurse and she was saying, oh, Linda, you're making a bigger deal out of what this is. And I said, you know what, tomorrow when you go into work, why don't you say that you're really anxious and that you have a big presentation to do and you know, you couldn't sleep last night and you're just beside yourself and just see what happens. So she did it. Four people, four people, nurses, offered her a Xanax within a 30-second 30 period of time. That's illegal. It's a felony to share drugs, and yet we do it without even thinking about it anymore. So, you know, I really think that there's a lot of education. We need to change our culture and go back to respecting drugs as being something that should be used on a limited basis and only used by the person they're prescribed to. 
It sounds, uh, Judge Davis, based on what you say, though, especially with the you're saying that the, the uh, legislature has been pretty aggressive. It sounds like the campaigns that you're part of are paying off to some degree. People are listening. Are. Uh, we're still going to see doubling of death numbers is my prediction for the next four, four, four or five years, because um, the number of pills that have been written that are sitting in people's medicine cabinets. And that's why the drug take backs are so important is to get those pills out of your medicine cabinets and discarded and don't worry about co-pays. Chances are you'll never need those drugs again. And now with all the new laws that are coming out, um, they're not, they're going to be using substitutes for those anyhow. So just get rid of them. They're dangerous to have around. Uh, They're even dangerous for you. If you forget your dosing, like a lot of seniors will take them, and they'll they'll forget that, did I take that pill this morning or I didn't? They take a second dose. They could accidentally overdose and have respiratory failure just because they dosed too much. So they really are dangerous, and we need to start looking at narcotic drugs as being dangerous to just have laying around the house. I think that's true. um, Getting back to to the um, the legislation for a second, you know, I mentioned just three efforts, Uh, the the prescription history database, the uh, limiting prescriptions to seven days and locks on prescription bottles. How much of a fight are those things? You know, I I'm aware of of arguments on both sides of all of those issues. So how how. How difficult is it to move these things forward and change people's minds? Um, It's getting easier because people are becoming more and more aware of the health risk and the magnitude of this epidemic. So it's getting easier and easier. And any change is hard. You know, I'm going to tell you, I've never, ever had to make a change in an institution, even my court that people don't fight tooth and nail against it. And then once they get used to it, they're fine with it. And what I always say to doctors is that when I was growing up, you didn't get narcotics for anything. You didn't, I'm older, you know, and when you broke a bone, you didn't get narcotics. You just didn't, you know, and we all survived that. Um, So we just really need to go back to understanding that the only reason we think that narcotics are so necessary is because that's what you've been taught But there really are a lot of alternatives out there, and I know that um, the government is working with pharmaceutical companies to come up with safe alternatives to narcotics for for dealing with pain. So I think we're going to see a lot more research in that area because the risk of addiction is too strong to just continue to write these for people who don't really need them. You know, most people can get a wisdom tooth pulled and never need to take a narcotic but they will if they're given to them. So just don't give them in the first place. If they call back and they're in excruciating pain or they get a hot socket, then you might have to up what you're doing. But for the original thing, most people can do fine. I've had wisdom teeth pulled. I never took a narcotic. Guess what? I survived just fine. And I can tell you numerous people that will tell you the same thing. So it shouldn't be a first course of treatment necessarily. And I do think that you're going to see the amount that you've been prescribed. It can tell you already that we're looking at taking it down to five days and eventually to three so that it's in line with CDC guidelines. We started soft with the seven days. 
um, to get people used to the fact that, hey, you can't write these for long-term use. Uh, but, but all of the statistics, Michigan Open, which is the University of Michigan research team, has shown that most of the time when a narcotic pain medication is written, it really isn't necessary, and that when 30 pills are written, what people really need are probably five. So we just really need to change the learning and educate doctors. I do think most doctors want to do the right thing, and when they are educated about the problem, they really do get on board and start curbing what they're doing. What You just said something that, it, it, what, what a very simple but profound thought that if if you don't, people aren't going to take them if they're not given to them. But if they're given to them, they're more likely to take them. Right. And, and there's also, when the University of Michigan did their team, they call supersizing it. That if you give people a small amount, like say a seven-day amount, they probably will only take a couple of those pills. If you give them a 30-day 30, 30 supply, they will take them longer. And they have shown, it's a large number, and I would have to look it up, of people that are written opiate drugs eight months later are addicted to them. But it's a large percentage. I mean, staggering statistic of the number of people that are written them that end up addicted to them. So the thing is, is like you go to McDonald's, if you get a supersize your order, you will eat more French fries. If you get a small bag of French fries, we all like to leave a few so we don't feel like we're pigs. So we always leave a few in the bag. We do the same thing with pills. If we're written a large amount, we'll take a larger amount. If we're written a smaller amount, we take even a lesser amount. It's just our human nature. Now, Judge Davis, though, in a previous podcast, I had somebody argue that if you limit the the, uh, the number of prescription, the, the length of the prescription, seven days, three days, five days, whatever it may be. The argument was that, that people then are more likely to go out and start using heroin or a drug on the street when because their prescription for narcotics has run out. What's your counter to that argument? Well, if you help get this person addicted because you've been writing them scripts a lot longer than you should have and you haven't been weaning them off of them properly, then it's your responsibility of a doctor to take that patient under your wing to probably suggest to them that they need to go in and be detoxed from these drugs and that they probably need some treatment to help them deal with getting past the addiction to it. It takes time, but let's just be really blunt here. And and I don't blame physicians, so I don't want this to come out that I'm a physician hater because they were only doing what they were taught and what they thought were right. But now we know that's not. And I know a lot of doctors that have taken responsibility, and so they have treatment um, information in their doctor's offices to help find treatment for people that they unwittingly got addicted to drugs because they didn't know better than writing over and over and over for these opiate prescriptions. It is going to take a mass effort and all of us working together to get the people that have become addicted because of our problem, because the federal government made pain management a fifth vital sign, because reimbursements to hospitals and doctors were based on how well they managed pain. They're all part of that process. And now they have to help get people 
that became addicted because they based their diagnosis and treatment on false information, they need to work at getting those people into treatment and getting them help. You don't just keep a nation addicted to drugs because you don't know how to deal with the next step. You need to learn. Let, let me, uh, we're talking about opiates, of course, but let me go back to, to the, the drug court work and some of the limitations of that. Do we, are we running the risk at all with this focus on opiates of, I don't want to say ignoring, but minimizing our efforts with other drugs, alcohol and cocaine and amphetamines? Are, is, is the focus on, on opiates overshadowing those efforts? And are you, are you having those dilemmas in your drug court? Uh, no. We still have people that come in that have cocaine problems. Uh, alcohol problems, and we treat those just like we would any addiction. Addiction is addiction is addiction. Opiates are oftentimes harder to deal with and get people off because they are so much more addictive and so much stronger. Um, And I think that's why the focus is on opiates is because those are deadly. I mean, you continue to use opiates, you're going to die or end up in prison. They're not pretty results. Um, So I think that we're focusing on that because it is the hugest problem we're facing right now. But certainly I think that some good is coming from all of this because we are talking about addiction as a whole uh, and reducing the stigma of being addicted to any substance and understanding that it's a brain disease and that it needs treatment. So even though that's not necessarily the focus, I think there's a lot of help. Um, And, Jim, we're running short on time here. I've got to leave in 10 minutes. So I'm going to jump into the Hope Not Handcuffs program. Yeah, please do. That's a program that we uh, launched through Families Against Narcotics a little over a year ago, February 1st of last year, 2017. And we have placed almost 1,200 people into treatment during that period of time. And it's a program where if you are an addict, not an opiate addict, but an addict, whether it's to cocaine, to alcohol, to methamphetamine, um, to benzodiazepines, to um, opiates, you can walk into any one of our participating police departments, and we're in eight different counties now, and up to close to 55 police departments, I believe. You can walk into any one of those police departments, ask for help, an angel volunteer will show up and start making calls to get you into treatment. And about 98% of the people that we work with get into treatment that day. That's a, so, that's an astonishing number because that, it's, that's it's a, been phenomenal. that's a difficulty, isn't it? Get, getting people in treatment when they're ready to get in, when they're asking for help. Right. If you miss that window of opportunity, that person is very likely to either die or just be back out on the streets again before we can get them help. So when someone is saying, look, I'm ready, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I'm ready, can you help me? You better have your arms open ready to do it. And this program is really phenomenal. Like in Macomb County, our access center makes us a priority for treatment. And some people criticize that, like, that's not fair. Why would your program get priority? Well, our program does more than just place people into treatment. It also destigmatizes addiction. When you get police officers that are on the front line of helping addicts get help, rather than looking to incarcerate them and treat them like criminals, you are doing a lot more than placing someone into treatment. 
you're reducing the stigma of addiction. And I can give you example of example of how that happened. This was not well received by our police departments in the beginning. They were a little bit hesitant, like, hey, we lock people up that do, do drugs. We don't get treatment for them. And I said, well, look, what you're doing isn't working. You're just wasting all the taxpayers' money. And it's good PR for you to be on the front end of doing something good in your community to help a lot of families. So why don't you just give it a try? And because I was a prosecutor and I worked with many of these chiefs, they were willing to give it a try. Now they'll stop someone on the roadside that's like pulled over and it'll be someone shooting up narcotics. Instead of taking them to jail, they'll call Hope Not Handcuffs and say, hey, can you have an angel meet me at the station? I got a kid that's truly a good kid here but that he's caught in the midst of this addiction, I'd like to get him some help. We have police departments calling and saying, hey, when we go to an overdose, if the person refuses treatment, can we go back in a couple of days and give them hope not handcuff information and try to help them get into treatment? Because they see the success of the program and people that they have locked up over and over and over again are now walking in and thanking them for you know, thanks for, for pe- treating me respectfully. Thank you for being encouraging when I came through the door. Thanks for helping to get some help. And the, the, our police departments are saying this is the best PR thing and the best thing we've ever done for our community. So we're reducing the stigma of addiction just by this program alone. How can uh, people who are listening to this uh, get more information? How can they get a hold of you or or of... Hope Not Handcuffs or Families Against Narcotics, if they want to look at doing something in their community, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, they can go either to familiesagainstnarcotics.org and just email us and let us know what you're looking for, or they can go to hopenothandcuffs.com, and um, there's all kinds of information on how to get a group going in your area. I will tell you that we're looking to take this out of state, but until we can get a hired staff, we do all of our work as volunteers in Families Against Narcotics. Um, We all have full-time jobs that we work, and we do this in our spare time. Um, And it is run predominantly with with the exception of a couple of um, administrative assistants. It's done all by volunteers. And so we can't do things nationally until we have funding to do that. Uh, And we can't even spread statewide. I mean, we are in eight counties right now, um, but we're traveling at nighttime and coming back late at night to be at our day jobs the next day. We really need to get a paid staff if we're going to be taking this statewide and do this as comprehensively as we want. And even with Families Against Narcotics, the families are always left out of the equation. And if you've ever met a family that's going through the addictive process with someone that they love, it is draining. It's grueling. Um, And it's so disheartening, and it really does destroy the whole family unit. And if families have some place that they can go to process this, to get help, to talk about what works, what doesn't work, and how can they support their loved one in their in their recovery rather than enabling their addiction, things begin, begin to change. When the parents get help, lo and behold, the young person starts changing too because they can no longer manipulate their parents. So that's a part of the process that has been totally ignored for years and years and years. And Families Against Narcotics offers that 
in 20, um, 29 different locations across the state of Michigan, and we're hoping to expand that statewide this year if we can get the funding to do it, to make this available to every community so that no one has to go through this alone. Judge Davis, I want to thank you so much. I know you have to go. Um, we, could, we could talk about uh, this a lot longer, I'm sure, but I want to thank you. Uh, ADE, uh, we'd, like to, we'd like to be a help in any way we can, so feel free to reach out to us if there's anything we can do for you, but I want to thank you very much. And I'm sorry, you know, one of the things that I, that I wanted to get to and we just ran out of time was the issue of uh, medical and recreational marijuana. There's a, you know, they're looking at the, at the ballot initiative here in Michigan and Perhaps that'll be another conversation. But I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, You're offer eight. Welcome, Jim. It was a pleasure, and I'm always glad to help somebody that wants to be part of the solution to this epidemic. Great, wonderful. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ADE Spotlight Podcast. If you would like to be a guest on one of our podcasts or if you have an idea for a topic you'd like us to cover, please feel free to drop us a line. We'd love to hear your suggestions. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to check out ADE Solutions, a new website from ADE. There you will find a variety of quizzes and assessments covering a whole range of behavior health related topics, including substance use, gambling, mental health disorders, eating disorders, and the like. If you have concerns about yourself or a loved one in these areas, uh, please uh, access the website and check out the assessments. Or if you simply want to expand your knowledge on these topics, on the education tab on that website, we have a variety of quizzes uh, as well as other podcasts similar to the one that you just listened to. You can find that at www.ade.solutions or you can link to it from our corporate website www.adeincorp.com